Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. You're in purgatory for the whole year? Yeah, time flies when you're running for your life. Do you mind me trying? The Grim. Possibly. I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita. And this is the Nerd App Podcast. This week, the authors of the book Fangasm, Supernatural Fangirls, come on to defend the fangirl and tell you all it's okay if you are. Also, we'll talk a little bit about Supernatural and what the deal is with that show. Trisha and I have never seen it, but it sounds like it could be pretty intriguing after all. Sounds like quite the rabbit hole, and I'm familiar with the fandom of Supernatural from the Doctor Who and Sherlock fandoms. They overlap a bit on Tumblr. I am shocked. (laughs) And homework this week from Anne Hood. She is a knitting fanatic. But first, back to Tumblr, because that's where we first discovered Ladies Against Humanity. It's a Tumblr where each post is a card that would fit in the Cards Against Humanity game, which is like apples to apples, but for grown-ups with kind of a dark sense of humor. And... Ladies Against Humanity was created by Kate Stamen London. She's a screenwriter and a playwright working in Los Angeles. And this is one of those instances of a late night idea that you joke about with your friends turning out to be something the world really needed. Kate's Tumblr, Ladies Against Humanity, went from zero to a million page views in just a matter of days. And that wasn't even the best thing about her week. I'm Kate Stame in London, and this weekend I was at the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. (laughs) It was amazing. You walk in and sort of it's made to look like Hogsmeade Village from the books, and you kind of feel like you're in a really clean, really bustling town, but like one of those like super planned towns, like it's Pasadena or Bethesda or someplace, (laughs) except it's Hogsmeade. It was just, you know, a Harry Potter fangirl's dream made into reality. I would worry almost that, like, there would be some disappointment still because it's not actually real. Is there a sort of a letdown or is it just too cool to even worry about the fact that you have to go back to real life tomorrow? I mean, they're opening one of these in L.A. uh, where I live in 2015. And there's a little bit of me that's like, well, I should probably just get an annual pass and then I could just, you know, go and do my writing and work from the three broomsticks on a daily basis. And then it really could be like Hogsmeade is just an outpost of my existence. Um, But definitely it was so, so well done. I think the biggest letdown was that it's actually pretty small. And so my friend and I, you know, we planned this trip months ago. We've been talking about it for years and we went And when we ran in the first morning, we were like overjoyed children on Christmas. I couldn't sleep the night before because I was too excited. (laughs) And we're running into the park. And then two hours later, we're sitting having breakfast. And we're like, 
did we already do everything that there is to do here? <laughs> it sort of hit us that we now have an entire weekend planned at, at a park that's actually so small that you can do everything in two hours. But then it was like, okay, well, now that we have done everything, there's no real pressure. So we could sort of clear out when it got really crowded and then come back at night when it started to empty out again, which was actually my favorite part was just seeing Hogwarts Castle all lit up at night and really enough cannot be said about what a beautiful job they did with Hogwarts Castle. It's so gargantuan and imposing and looks really like you've wandered onto the set of the film. And it just was really cool to sort of walk up to it and be like, well, there it is. And you know, maybe it's not an actual place that exists in the world, but this is sort of the closest facsimile that there could be of that, and it was a lot of fun. So your trip this weekend meant that Ladies Against Humanity, the Tumblr that blew up, and we'll talk a little bit more about how crazy this last week or so must have been for you having this idea and having it get so popular so quickly, but I love that you gave it a theme this weekend. While you were at Harry Potter World, it was all Harry Potter-themed cards for the game. But maybe before we jump in and talk about them, we should explain what these cards are normally for. So can you explain what the game Cards Against Humanity usually looks like and how it plays out? Yes, and I hope this will go better than when I called my dad and tried to explain the game to him. And I was like, Dad, have you heard of Cards Against Humanity? And he said, no. And I said, okay. Have you heard of Apples to Apples? And he said, no. And I said, okay. (laughs) So Cards Against Humanity is a game that you play sort of in a circle of friends or coworkers, if you're adventurous, as I can attest. How it works is there are black cards and white cards. And you have 10 white cards in your hand and it rotates. So somebody is asking a question on one of the black cards. So the black card might say, during sex, I like to think about blank. And then you look at the white cards in your hand, which will have a variety of answers, such as Mr. Clean standing right behind you. Hmm. And that might be what you think would be the funniest card to play in that particular instance. So you put down your card and everybody else puts down their card. And then the person who asked the question decides which is the funniest answer of that particular round. And if it's your card, you win that round. And this is much like apples to apples, but it's a darker, darker version (laughs) of apples to apples. Exactly. And they, you know, their tagline is a party game for horrible people, which is sort of the tongue in cheek uh, thing that it's, uh, you know, it's the kind of comedy I really love, which is taking sort of darker, unexpected things and finding the funny that lives there. How did your blog, Ladies Against Humanity, come about? So it was really incredibly random. (laughs) I was just chatting with some friends. And, you know, we're all big Cards Against Humanity fans and players, and we've played together before. And one of my friends said, you know, it's kind of a shame that there aren't more lady-centric cards. And I bet one of the reasons is that the game was founded by a group of eight guys. And I was like, oh, yeah, there should totally be more lady-centric cards. I could write those. And he was like, well, you should write those. Why don't you start a Tumblr of what those lady cards would be? And I was like, oh, that sounds fun. But, you know, I'm kind of busy and I have other things to do. And he was like, you should do it. And I was like, well, that does sound better than revising my screenplay. So find me something where you can make the graphics and I'll do it. And six seconds later, he sent me a link to make the graphics that, it looks like the cards from the game. And I said, fine, fine. So I spent 20 minutes writing the first 10 cards and just put up a super basic Tumblr and dropped the link back into a chat room with a few of my friends who'd been having that discussion. 
And one of the people in that chat room was Shelby Knox, who's a pretty well-known feminist with a huge following on Twitter. And she didn't realize that I had written the blog. She thought it was just some link I had found on the Internet in reference to the conversation we've been having. But she loved it. So she tweeted it. And she has 30,000 Twitter followers. And it was like, oh, I guess we're going live with this right now, 20 minutes after I had created it. (laughs) And we immediately saw that it was huge amounts of retweets and lots of traffic. And people started posting it on Facebook immediately. And it was like, oh, my God. And so, thank goodness, I have friends who are just really, really good at the Internet. And my one friend put up a Creative Commons license and started coding things for me. And my other friend grabbed the Twitter handle and started tweeting things. And I just went into a hole for six hours and started writing more jokes and just started to get some content up there. Any blog or whatever that I had ever done on the Internet before this had topped out at tens or dozens of followers. So this was, this was a new experience for me. Actually, I just checked right before talking to you guys, and we actually just passed a million. So <laughs> That's so amazing. That's what's happening today. I think it's fair to say that the population is definitely a testament to the fact that this is something that the world really needed. You know what I mean? Obviously, this was a hole that had to be filled, and you managed to make it happen. Good, good uh, double entendre there with hole that had to be filled. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because one of the things I sort of noticed in the first couple of days was people were saying, I never really thought of Cards Against Humanity as a particularly dude-centric game. And I think that's really fair, right? Because I agree with that. You know, I play the game all the time. And usually I have a pretty good spidey sense about when something has misogynist undertones. And I don't think that about Cards Against Humanity. But I think that one thing that this blog has really forced me to recognize is we are so, so used to hearing the male voice and the white voice and the economically privileged voice in especially American entertainment and pop culture that we don't even notice that that's what's happening. And so when you see an explicitly female voice, the difference is so stark. And you're like, wow, we really are missing this. In the same way that when we complain about a show that we like or a game that we play, not being outwardly sexist, but just missing a lot of funny by not having females in the room as they're writing the jokes or writing the cards. That's the piece that rings truest to me. You know, when people are like, well, is it explicitly feminist to tell a tampon joke? I do not know the answer to that question, but I think that it is explicitly feminist anytime a woman is telling her story in whatever form that takes, whether that's, you know, Taylor Swift singing about her breakups, which I think is totally an act of feminism, or me writing a joke about a diva cup. Either of those things, it's just women talking about the female experience and having the opportunity to do that. And what kills me about it is how surprised everyone is when people actually like that. Every summer, whatever the female-centric movie of the summer is that does really well, whether it's Bridesmaids or the Sex and the City movie or whatever movie it is, you always see some article in Variety about Hollywood executives shocked to understand that women enjoy film about women. It's like, well, yeah, you're half of the movie-going audience, and we do enjoy hearing things or seeing things about ourselves every once in a while. We're not super narcissistic, but every so often it's nice. You know, I have to say, though, one of my biggest problems with Bridesmaids was that they did that whole scene with the poop, and there was no period blood anywhere in that movie. (laughs) Actually, the first criticism I've ever heard of Bridesmaids for not being gross enough. I have to say, Jill, the image of Maya Rudolph just pooping on the street and being like, this is this is happening. It's happening. It's just like <laughs> that will stick with me as one of the great moments of lady comedy. 
All right. Can we just read at you some of our very favorite ones so that our listeners can get a little more of a sense of what the genius of some of these is? (laughs) I mean, yeah, absolutely. With the Harry Potter theme from this weekend, there's the white card. So keep in mind, folks, if you were playing the game, you could make this the answer to a question. It would be Sirius Black holding his hand over your mouth so you don't wake his mother's portrait. (laughs) So beautiful. That was my favorite one from the Harry Potter set. And one thing, I really loved it. So a lot of people came to the blog for the first time during the onslaught of Harry Potter-themed cards that happened this weekend. Someone tweeted about it. You know, I I like this Ladies in Humanity blog, but I don't understand all the Harry Potter erotica. (laughs) (laughs) If we were to memorialize this entire weird experience that I've been having with one sentence, I hope it's that one. Like, I hope that's how people remember this whole strange Internet phenomenon. I think a close second to that is Dumbledore's rarely seen club robes. (laughs) Oh, man. I just I really I like to picture Dumbledore just really losing his shit to some house music. (laughs) I think that's the prequel we've all been waiting for, really. Someone better email J.K. Rowling and be like, you know what, we've got it. <laughs> Another one of my favorites that is not Harry Potter related, but important nonetheless, is another white card that says wearing yoga clothes to not do yoga. <laughs> I was having a conversation with this woman and I was talking about sitting around in yoga pants and she lives in my neighborhood and she said, oh, where do you do yoga? And I said, oh, God, I don't do yoga. Um, <laughs> So what happens now? You did this just sort of on a whim with some friends, and now you've got a million hits and you're getting all this attention. Is there potential for this becoming a card pack that people can buy to add to their game? Or is that a conversation that obviously probably has to include the founders of the game? But what's next for you and this project? You know, I don't know. (laughs) The idea of having an expansion pack of uh, my cards is the most common uh, idea that I get emails about that every day. People are tweeting at the Cards Against Humanity folks about that idea every day. One person wrote an open letter that I really loved suggesting an expansion pack of my cards to raise money for a charity that benefits women, which I thought was a really cool idea. I loved that. I have no idea what will actually happen. To be honest, it's been so overwhelming to just kind of keep up with what's going on and churn out dozens of new jokes every day that I've been like, can I do these things and still go to Harry Potter world and not think too far in the future? Um, But it's definitely exciting to get emails from random people being like, have you thought about making this a book? Have you thought about making this a TV show? I'm like, I don't know what would happen on that show, but I would watch it. Um, (laughs) I think it'll be fun to see what, if anything, comes of it or if everyone gets bored and moves on to something else next week, which also happens on the internet. So I'm trying to keep it in perspective and take it in stride. And it's fun that people are paying attention. And it's fun, like we were saying before, you know, just to have that validation that, yeah, this is a brand of comedy about women that is something that's exciting to people and that people want more of. So whether it's from me or whether it's other projects or studio executives or network executives or book publishers are saying, huh, people have an appetite for this. Maybe I should give a second look at that project I thought wouldn't have an audience. That's the most exciting thing to me. So this is proof then. You can do the cards and go to Harry Potter World, which means a woman really can have it all, right? (laughs) I know some people would like to have a career in children, but um, I would like to have menstrual blood jokes and uh, a wand of Hawthorne. Thanks to Kate Stamen London. I hope that I can buy a set of these cards to add to my Cards Against Humanity soon. If you want to read more of the cards, they're all available 
at ladiesagainsthumanity.tumblr.com. You can also find Ladies Against Humanity on Twitter. It's pretty much the funniest thing ever. Now it's time for a conversation with the authors of a book that we judged by the cover. We did. We judged them. <laughs> How could you not? It was judging in such a good way. The book is called Fangasm, Supernatural Fangirls. It was written by Katherine Larson and Lynn Zubernis. It's the story of extreme passion, extreme nerdery, and how you don't get to choose what you love. What I really love about Fangasm is the fact that it's an attempt to intellectualize something that is almost completely irrational. And what I like about it is that they're fangirls. We both fell in love with Supernatural at the same time, thanks to the constant encouragement of a mutual friend of ours who fell in love with it first and kept telling us for a year, it's the most incredible show, it's the most incredible show, and we kept resisting and resisting, and then we both sort of fell head over heels at the same time. It took a while to have that moment where it just hits you, and you know you love something passionately, and you can't live without it. Well, and if you guys are anything like me, too, you kind of resent being told what to do. So there's a lot of stubborn inertia initially before finally admitting like, okay, yes, I love Battlestar Galactica. I will continue to watch. Exactly. I think everybody is like that. You have your fanish enablers, but it always takes a while. You never succumb right away. There's always this resistance period. And then suddenly you're just like, it's true. This is the most incredible show ever. I'm on board now. And I'm guessing most of our audience at least knows what the show is, but can you give us a quick synopsis of what the show is, where you were watching it? The show itself is on the CW, and when it first started, it was on the WB. So small show, small network. The show itself is about two brothers who have been raised by their demon-obsessed father in the demon-hunting ways. I guess whoever built that box didn't want me in there any more than I did. What does that mean? I'm here. Okay. What about Cass? Was he there? Yeah, Cass didn't make it. What exactly does that mean? Something happened to him down there. Things got pretty hairy towards the end, and he just let go. So Cass is dead, and you saw him die? I saw enough. So, then what? You're not sure? I said I saw enough, Sam. Explain your journey down the rabbit hole of fandom. I've had my own for many different things throughout the years, but it starts with just watching the show, and then it gets a little more intense, right? Yeah, I think this is the same for both Lynn and I, and we had different moments when that intensity came, and for different reasons. For me, it was actually a moment watching the show. I was watching the show and grading papers at the same time, bad me. I was paying attention, though, honestly if anybody's listening, and my daughter was watching it too, and we were both sort of just casually doing our thing with Supernatural on in the background, and suddenly I found myself just so pulled into the story, I literally dropped the stack of papers that I was grading and scooted forward on the couch, and then I said to my daughter, oh my God, this is the most amazing show I've ever seen, and she sort of said, Mom, you've been watching the show for a year. What are you talking about? <laughs> but it just hadn't grabbed me. And it was a very emotional moment between the brothers. And the acting was unbelievable to me. And the emotion just flew off the television screen. And that was it. I was hooked. I literally got up off the couch and grabbed the season one DVDs, which our enabler friend had given me. And I had never even opened them. They were still in the plastic wrap, ripped off the plastic, and sat down and started watching from the beginning again. After you fall in love with the show, then you jump online, and then you find the fan fiction community where there are 
tons of other people who are fascinated by those emotional moments and want to write more about them in fan fiction and explore them in other ways. And we both jumped into the fan community, the Supernatural online community, which at the time was mostly on LiveJournal. Now it's expanded and is on Twitter and Tumblr and Facebook and everywhere else. It was a very tight-knit community back in Season 2 when we jumped into it. So that was a big part of the fandom experience, too, finding this group of mostly women who loved the same thing that we loved and really wanted to engage with one another in a very real and genuine way, which women don't always get to do. The conversations around the shows were just so compelling in and of themselves. And the ways that people were talking about the show online were just really smart and savvy and interesting so that you kept coming back not only because you loved the show and you loved the storyline and you loved the actors, but you got to really love the people and that opportunity to have those kinds of conversations. Did you guys meet people? Have you made in real life friends, IRL friends from the fandom? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So many at this point, because we very early on decided that, A, it wasn't enough just to watch it on TV and interact online, and B, we were going to write a book about the crazy thing that had happened to us. So we sort of turned it into a road trip through supernatural fandom. So we went to concerts and stage plays, then started going to the conventions. And some of my closest friends in real life at this point are people who I've met through fandom and now know in real life and get together with them outside of conventions or whatever. So yeah, absolutely. Every convention that we go to, it's a reunion. There are dozens of people who we're going to get to see in real life again that we just keep in touch with online throughout the year, but we see them at least once a year at this convention. I don't know what we're going to do. We often talk about, well, when the conventions are over, we're just going to have to stage our own fangirl reunion and do it that way. Now, there must be at least a few fanboys. Oh, yeah, there are, but not too many. I think there's a lot of guys who watch the show. Some of the men in my life watch the show and like it but would not identify as fans. Mm. And at conventions, there's very few male fans who are spouses. And there are a small number of gay male fans who come. I wouldn't say that we still absolutely understand it, even after all these years of studying it and experiencing it. But, I mean, this is not to be pathologizing, but it's a little bit like an addiction model. When you fall in love with something and it feels really good and you really want it, you want more of it. And you're willing to go to pretty great lengths to get it. I can certainly say that I feel like I've gone to great lengths sometimes to get a quote-unquote fix of Supernatural. And I think many fans feel the same. We regularly run into the same people at conventions who come from Japan and Australia and literally halfway around the world. And some of them do it multiple times a year since most of the conventions are in the United States. But I think when you have that great love and great passion for something... It's tremendously rewarding to be able to interact with the actors in person and also to be able to be immersed in a group of like-minded people who are also loving the same thing. And it's so powerful that people are willing to invest a lot of time and money and effort in it. Lynn used both of the words that I think sort of set us off on wanting to write about fandom anyway, and one was the tendency to pathologize fans and the tendency to use words like addicted or obsessed with fans in a very sort of dismissive way. And what we set out wanting to do was to both pursue our own passions for the show, but also 
to do our bit to rehabilitate the image of fans that they're not. The two models you get are the fanboy who lives in his parents' basement or the crazy cat woman who has 50 cats and no love life. And neither of those are the norm, but we still keep bumping up against that pathology and those cultural stereotypes. We wanted to understand that, and we also wanted to speak against that, really. The other stereotype for female fans, I think, is crazy stalker chick, which we've been accused of more than once. But again, that really doesn't apply to the vast majority of fans. I don't think there are any more crazy stalkers in fandom than there are if you put together a group of 10,000 accountants, you'd probably get the same ratio of pathology. It's a bell curve in the end. Exactly. From the feedback that we've gotten from Fangasm written to combat that shame is exactly that. I just have countless emails from people saying, I was ashamed and now I'm not ashamed. This book really meant something to me. I understand myself. I don't feel alone. Thank you for writing it, which is really the best feedback an author can get. Thanks to Catherine and Lynn, authors of Fangasm Supernatural Fangirls. You can find a link to that book and all the books written by authors you hear on Nerd App Podcast at nerdappodcast.com. You know what else you can find on nerdappodcast.com, Tricia? What? A bunch of really cool merch. Like buttons? Like buttons, like... Like shirts? Like shirts. Like shirts for my dog? Like shirts for your dog. Like flasks for my dog? Like flasks for your dog. Greta, you should not encourage people to get their dogs drunk. You don't even have a dog, Trisha. <laughs> More booze for me. In any case, there's all kinds of really great stuff. Check it out, nerdappodcast.com slash shop. Now that we've heard from ladies who have traveled across the country to experience variations on their fangirliness, we invite you to share some of your crazy fangasm moments with us by calling 312-600-5638. Remember, everyone, Nerdette is a safe space. No judgment. We want to hear your nerd out moments. Kind of like when I told Tracy Letts a couple episodes back that I dressed up as him at a party once. You don't think that was weird? That is pretty intense. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say I dressed up as Professor Trelawney for the release of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, but you totally have me beat, Tricia. Who didn't? (laughs) Trelawney was the best one. Uh, You may be young in years, but the heart that beats beneath your bosom is as shriveled as an old maid's. Your soul as dry as the pages of the books to which you so desperately cleave. So whether it was cosplay or cracking some sort of crazy code in your favorite video game, tell us about the moments that were the most memorable fangasms for you. Again, that's 312-600-5638. We'll play your responses on an upcoming episode. And now it's time for homework. Anne Hood's most recent book is called Knitting Yarns. It's a compilation of essays written by authors about knitting. Some adore knitting, some kind of hate it, some have never actually done it. It's a really great take on something that I'm a really big nerd about. We're going to talk with her more in a later episode, but her homework was just too good not to share now. Your homework is to, at least for the next month, start every day by reading a poem. Because I find that that gets me into the wonderful world of language and helps me with whatever happens that day. You can join the Poetry Society by email. All of it is free. Or the Writer's Almanac sends you a poem every day. Or just buy a book of poems and every day start by just reading one and you'll have a better day. Bonus homework alert. Bonus homework alert. (laughs) That's enough, Greta. That is enough. (laughs) Um, Your other piece of homework this week comes from the authors of Fangasm. 
this kind of goes along with the whole idea of fan shame, but I think this movie, more than the rest, that claimed to sort of rehabilitate the image of the fans, because certainly Trekkie, you know, claimed that, even though they didn't actually do it. The movie about My Little Pony fans, Bronies, does actually seem to go further in that direction of not making fans the object of jokes or the object of tittering or laughing and really just kind of explain a fan culture. Perfect. And Lynn, what about you? I sincerely wish that fans could read Fangasm because I do think that it accomplished at least a little bit of what we wanted to do, which was to challenge fan shame and to make women especially feel okay about being fans and feel good about being fans and allow them to really revel in that community that's out there that can be so life-changing. So it's important to me, and maybe that's my psychologist side. I want to be a therapist sort of all the time, but that sounds really self-serving. So the other thing I will say is I would wish everybody would go watch the pilot of Supernatural because I really feel like this is a show that it's just amazing. It's changed my life. It's changed a lot of people's lives, and if a couple more people get sucked in, then maybe I've done my evangelist duty, and it'll be a good thing for them in the long run. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks to our guests, Kate Stamen-London and the authors of Fangasm, Catherine Larson and Lynn Zuberness. And thanks to Anne Hood for the homework. Can't wait to hear from her in a later episode. Thanks to Joe Dassault for his production help. And thanks to our home stations, WCQS and WBEZ. Thank you for listening on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Throw us some stars if you're feeling benevolent or ninja-like. And to be clear, we don't want you to injure anyone. We just want you to rate us highly on iTunes. These are not actual throwing stars, folks. Our theme music is New Old Toys by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to the Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.